Please take out your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 29. If you don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and we would welcome you to take it. Well, I appreciate Myron stepping in for me two weeks ago as my family was away at a wedding. As we've been walking through the book of Genesis, we have been very mindful to see the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. That is, I've wanted you to see how the Old Testament lays a foundation and how it lays out the illustrations of what we find theology to be in the New Testament. And so we've been following a pattern of watching the Old Testament and then seeing the same things in the New Testament. We'll see that again this morning, seeing the old first and then the new. And so it has been my hope this summer that in my absences that we could reverse that process and look at the New Testament first to see back through to the Old Testament understanding. And so back in May, Shane took us through Romans 4 with that idea. And a couple weeks ago, Myron opened up Romans chapter 9. Passages, both of them, built on an understanding of the book of Genesis. And so having seen from the old to the new, we wanted you to see from the new back to the old. And so I'm thankful to both Myron and Shane for how they opened up God's word for us in those instances. This morning, we're turning back to Genesis. And as we turn to Genesis 29 this morning, we will be picking back up in the story of Jacob. And if you remember, God made promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Among them, he told Abraham that he would bless him and he would bless his whole family to the generations. And the Lord was faithful to those promises. And we see that faithfulness fulfilled as the Lord God extends his promises to Abraham's son Isaac, just as he said he would. We see that fulfilled in Genesis chapter 24. And then the Lord God who made those same promises to Isaac, who was faithful to Isaac. Even, as you may remember, the only story we have of Isaac's faith was the fact that he didn't trust the Lord. That's the only story of him that focuses on him we have in the Scripture. Yet God was faithful to him. And we see God continuing the promises given to Isaac on through Jacob. And we saw that beginning in chapter 25, that the Lord God chose Jacob, just as he had chosen Abraham and Isaac before him. So let me pause on this idea for a second and let me say this. In looking at these passages and tying them to the New Testament, I want to be clear about one thing just to help. I have not been attempting to teach Calvinism or defeat Arminianism or allude to any other isms. People have whispered this to me. We were teaching the Bible and being very clear about what the text says. And if you study this text, I would gladly talk to any of you about it. Because what becomes abundantly clear is that the Lord God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because they were religious, not because they were rule followers, and not because they chose him first. We can read back through all of those passages. God did not project them to be righteous, great people. We've tried to make that point each and every week. Rather, when the Lord God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's actually aligning himself with three rule breakers, three kind of unfaithful guys whose only merit was that they believed in God. And that's our hope. That's true of us. And so as we've pushed through that, I've also wanted you to see that God showed mercy to them. 
And in each and every one of those stories we find in God showing them mercy, they also responded to him. They also had to believe. It's a both and of theology. And so Genesis chapter 8, we see Jacob's response. The Lord God appears to Jacob in a dream. The Lord God makes his promises to Jacob clear, makes his presence to Jacob clear, saying, I will not leave you until what I've done until I've accomplished what I've promised. A promise we can hold on to even in the New Testament. And then Jacob wakes up, knowing that he had met with the Lord, and he too responds in faith. He believes in the Lord God, just like what we saw in his father Isaac, and just like we saw in his grandfather Abraham. And so friends, as we've walked through these stories in Genesis I've been striving to connect the dots from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way through to the completed work of Jesus Christ so that you too would see in the New Testament that you who have believed in Jesus Christ have been declared chosen and that you have had to choose to respond to him in faith to be saved. It's a both and. You find it in Scripture. And brothers and sisters, that is not all that the story of Jacob has to teach us. We're going to press on into his life. So turn with me to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of his people in the east. If you remember at the end of Genesis 28, Isaac and Rebekah had sent Jacob to Haran to go find his uncle Laban. He had two purposes for that first. They were trying to protect Jacob from his brother Esau. If you remember, Jacob tricked. He deceived his brother Esau not only out of his birthright, but also he stole his blessing. Needless to say, Esau is not happy about that. And we see the character of Jacob kind of described, or he comes out as a deceiver. We see negative characteristics in him. And secondly, Isaac and Rebekah sent him there that he might find a wife. That's his journey. That's his purpose. And so after his dream in Genesis 28, he continues on his journey to Haran, verse 2. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Moses is just trying to give us some context to understand what's about to happen. These shepherds go to this place to water their sheep. There's a big stone, they move it. He's just wanting you to know that. Verse 4. Jacob said to them, talking to the shepherds, My brothers, where do you come from? They said we were from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Verse 7. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, and then we water the sheep. Let's pause for a second. He's establishing some context for us, but he's also starting to establish some truths for us. Because what we're supposed to start picking up about this, a clue we're supposed to start picking up about Laban, is that Moses is pointing out to us some character deficiencies in Laban. 
that his shepherds are both lazy and unknowledgeable. The idea that they're waiting until all the sheep gather rather than going ahead and letting them drink and then rest. He's waiting. The sheep are all just standing around. He's not taking care of the sheep. This would reflect on Laban. And Jacob seems to recognize this. We'll pick that up in the next couple of weeks as we continue on in this story. But here goes verse 9. While he was still speaking them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, there are a couple ways to read this passage. What I would want to suggest to you up front is this passage seems to be suggesting that Jacob is excited to see his family rather than he's elated about Rachel. You see that because of repeated references to Laban's sheep and Laban this and Laban that. He's thankful that he's arrived from the end of his journey. He's found his cousin Rachel. They are excited to see each other. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. That's all setting us up for this story. Then Laban said to Jacob, again, they've been together for a month. Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be? I want to pay you. You've been working hard. How shall I pay you? Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What you have to appreciate is in that culture, beauty was far different than we see it now that the depths of a woman's eyes was considered the most beautiful, attractive thing you could find. Basically, he's asserting Rachel had prettier eyes than Leah. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of love he had for her. Now, culturally, we should step into this and suggest that in those days, it was customary that a man who was interested in marrying a daughter of a man would have to pay a bride price. As a father of two daughters, I'm interested in this idea. Normally, a man was responsible to pay a father something similar to three years worth of wages. It was basically a guarantee that the father would take that money, set it aside, something should ever happen to him, he'd have the money on the side to then provide for his daughter. That's the idea. And so what we find is Laban... What Jacob offers Laban is extraordinary. Jacob says, she's worth seven years worth of my service to you. He's put an extraordinarily high price on her. He says, I want to give you so much for her. She's of such great value to me. It tells you that he loved her. And he agrees, verse 21. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is com- completed. You see, the seven years passed. Jacob says, Let's have a marriage. Let's consummate this thing. You don't understand that? Ask your mom and dad later. So Laban gathered together all of the people of the place, and they made a feast. They have a large wedding party. Laban pulls together Jacob and Rachel to throw them a traditional wedding. And then you see that Jacob, the man who's been characterized thus far in the text as a deceiver, is deceived. Verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter and Leah to her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, Why have you done this thing to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then did you deceive me? Now there's three pains we should lean into right here. The first of which is that Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Seven years. Now, at first, reading this thing, I cannot fathom how a man could go into his wedding night and not notice it's not his bride. I mean, you've got to at least acknowledge that at some level. I mean, lack of electricity would play into that. But still. But the first pain you really have to lean into is that Jacob wakes up in the morning and goes, What? This is not what I, this is not whom I've married. What has happened here? And you've got to initially start to process Jacob's thinking. The extraordinary pain of, I went through seven years to marry this girl. I gave so much. God, where are you in the midst of this? Secondly, you've got to think about Leah, right? Leah watched her sister be betrothed for seven years. And then on their wedding night, her dad shows up and says, Hey, Leah, come here. Go in that tent. She had to know what was going on. And you can't convince me that that wasn't extraordinarily painful for her. Just to know that she was being passed over. Just to know that she was the subject of the deceit of her father. And you have to consider the pain of Rachel. To know that she had gone through this same seven years, excited to marry her groom. They go through this customary wedding, and then on the night, her dad says, no, you're, you're staying back. We're sending your sister. And the thing you have to lean into on this moment is, where is God? Because all these situations and circumstances have all come to a head, and you've got to ask yourself, where's God in the midst of this? And I would take you back to what the Lord God promised Jacob. I will not leave you until I've fulfilled my purpose for you. And what that tells us is that the Lord God was absolutely with Jacob in this. He was with him in this moment of pain and he had a purpose. We'll lean into that here in a minute. Let's finish the text. Laban said, It is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did this and completed her week. What you find is Jacob had back-to-back weddings. One week he marries Leah, the next week he marries Rachel. Then Laban gave him 
his daughter Rachel to be his wife, and Laban gave his female servant Billah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So what do we do with this text? How do we read it? How do we respond to it? What do we do when we really start reading behind the lines and start seeing the pain of people and circumstances that are hard and difficult? Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and Laban gives him Leah. And he has to work seven more years for Rachel. Friends, one of the realities of this text that we need to lean into is that we can be prone to believe that having believed in Jesus Christ, that having been chosen by God, having responded to Him in faith, that our lives should then be as smooth as silk and simple as the ABCs, and it isn't that way. What the Bible goes on to illustrate for us is even those who are chosen, even those who are respond in faith have difficulties in their lives. They go through hardship brought on by any number of situations. And we need to lean into the reality that the aim of our lives as people who seek to follow Jesus Christ is not that God would give us smooth and simple lives. Because what we find is that the Lord allows hard situations and circumstances. He puts things in our lives and before us that we would never choose for ourselves. He puts us in places we would never want, we would never desire. And it's because He has a hope greater for us than contentment. What we find is that the Lord God strives to grow us up to mature us. And what you see in this text is that Jacob needs to be confronted for his deceptive nature and he uses Laban to be a pretty good and painful teacher. Paul would remind us in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Lord God who chose Jacob also knew the sin of Jacob. And he was not going to let the sin go unchallenged. And that's a perspective we need in our lives. That there is a reality that the Lord God will challenge sin patterns in our lives and he will use every available circumstance and situation to grow us up into maturity for Jesus Christ. If we look at this situation, if we consider Jacob and Rachel and Leah, we'd be well served to consider the hard situations in our own lives and truly consider Romans 28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. That's the hard. That's the painful. That's the difficult. That's the unimaginable. That's the, I didn't plan for this. That's the, I don't want this. This, I would never choose this. I wouldn't give this to my worst enemy. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son. What's his purpose in our hardship? Our conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, he works all things for our good. Absolutely everything. And this morning, what I want to do for us, what I do want to do with us, is that we would start to see two things about the hard situations, the hard circumstances, the unthinkables, the things we would never choose for ourselves. First, shortly, more importantly, but we'll, get, we'll end on the other side. I want you to see that the Lord can use these things for the advancement of his kingdom. I want you to consider what Paul writes in Philippians 1. I mean, I really want you to consider this. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, I want to pause there. I did college ministry for seven years. One of the defining characteristics of working with college students for that long is the number of people who were defined by a moment, a situation, or an incident. They would look back at their lives and say, this happened to me and it's forever changed me for the negative. And I would always try to convince them in the life of a believer of Jesus Christ, there are only two days that can define us. The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we're defined by anything else, we need to have a higher view of Jesus. Paul says, what has happened to me? He looks back at this moment, something I didn't choose, something I didn't want, something that happened to me. He was a passive recipient in that. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I don't think Paul got there in a second. I don't think Paul said, "Mm, you know what, this is really hard and difficult. Oh, the gospel. I think through years of being built on, years of being chiseled on, years of having his edges roughed off, Paul starts to see the connection that I've got choices, that what happens to me I can either be defined by or I can take what happens in me and submit it to Jesus Christ. Paul could have seen what happened to him and been owned by it. This happened to me. I had plans. I knew what I wanted to do. I don't get to do it. Now I'm in jail. And rather than being owned by his circumstances, he recognizes that he's owned by Jesus. And that changed everything for Paul the way it should change everything for us. What Paul started to see is that the Lord could do anything, could put him in any situation, could put him in any circumstance. And what you find in Philippians 1.12 is the connection between our situation and our circumstances and, don't miss this, Romans 28, 8.28, the Lord working all things for our good. I could see what happened to me. The situation and circumstance served to advance the gospel for our good. Watch the next verse. Because Paul is able to take this situation and use it to build the kingdom. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And friends, that's our challenge in difficult situations is that God would build us to the point that we could look at whatever we're enduring, whatever we're walking through, that we could say at the end of it that it was for Christ. 
And that could be a difficult relationship. That could be difficult parenting. That could be a difficult working environment. That could be any, that could be a health situation. How do we take what we're going through and submit it to Jesus Christ such that we could say it's for Christ? This happened to me. It was for Christ. Paul yields himself to the Lord's plan. He submits to it that what is happening to me is coming from the Lord and he allowed it to yield itself to fruitful ministry. That's the first thing that can come from these situations. That's the big picture. Let me give you the day-to-day. Let me give you the harder, the little picture, the side you don't want to hear. The other thing that can happen from our hard situations and our circumstances, and I think this is really the true part of Genesis 29. I think this is the thrust of this text if we lean into it. Is that the Lord was using circumstances in Jacob's life to confront Jacob's sin. He was choosing to use the situation to refine his character. The Bible would call that discipline. Just like a good parent who disciplines his children, the Lord seeks to discipline us. Let's start with Proverbs 3.12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. If a father delights in his son, if a father truly loves his son, he will discipline him. This is true for daughters, by the way. So if you're a kid, you're in the room, you wonder, is it fair that mom and dad spanked me? Is it fair that mom and dad disciplined me? The answer is, they love you. So if you're at home and you're thinking to yourself, I don't get disciplined, I don't get spanked, we've got two realities, you don't sin that much, which is highly unlikely, or your parents don't love you. These are your options. Talk to your parents. Say, spank me more. But the author of the book of Hebrews takes this idea of Proverbs 3.12 and builds on it. See what the author of Hebrews says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor... Be weary when he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author of the book of Hebrews points back to Proverbs 3 and recognizes that clearly we're prone to forget. Such that he would call us, have you forgotten that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves? Which means, quite literally, that the Lord will use situations and circumstances in our lives to grow us in our dependency to Him and grow us in our holiness to make us more like Jesus. It's what got Paul to the point where he could say that all this is happening to me for Christ. It's that roughing of our edges. It's that sandpaper on our character. God says, I need to smooth you out a little bit over here. I need to rough off this corner. You need some help over here. Watch the rest of this passage. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now watch carefully. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seemed painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I got in a lot of trouble as a kid. I got spanked a ton. I probably wore my parents out. I probably gave both my mother and father lots of days when they went to bed thinking, why on earth did we get that one? I was disciplined. And I grew from it. There were moments in my life where it seemed painful, particularly on my bottom. I remember times when my dad would say, uh, meet me in my office. And I knew what that meant. So I would run upstairs and put on like 14 pairs of underwear and come back to his office. And he would look at me like any dad. I tell this to Pierce all the time. I was a son well before I was a father. Take off all the underwear. <laughs> he disciplined me to grow me in my character. One of my first jobs... I worked there for four years. My boss made a series of accusations against me. By the way, none of them were proven true. And through that process, I ended up quitting my job. Probably one of the most painful things that ever happened to me. It was extraordinarily painful and extraordinarily difficult. It's funny, if you fast forward three or four years down the road, I learned so much through that process that God shaped me and formed me. I never would have chosen it for myself, but God used it to refine my character. I, I scoot you forward four years because four years after that fact, same guy calls me on the phone and says, hey, I need to call you. Um, I have a board and my board chairman just made up a bunch of accusations against me. And it rec I recognize what I did to you. And I'm so sorry. It never occurred to me that my sin impacted you the way that it did. And it took God walking me through this for me to recognize what I did for you. I think that's exactly what God's doing in Jacob's life in this text. I think Jacob has to start thinking of Esau and go, man, what did I do to my brother? What did I do? What you find in this text is that the Lord God will use situations and circumstances. He's absolutely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And he uses situations and circumstances to refine our character so that we would grow up, so that we would mature, so that we could become more and more like Jesus 
so that we'd begin to have the perspective that the Lord God can do anything He wants because we're owned by Him. My brother Myron said, He's the potter and we're the clay. He can shape us and form us however He wants. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in His holiness. Friends, if we step back and if we watch the life of Jacob, we're to see the picture, and it will continue. This picture is going to continue to build for us. You see in the life of Jacob that he was chosen. You see that he responds in faith, and you see that the Lord choosing to refine his character, to challenge his sin patterns, to grow him up, to mature him. It's not a smooth ride. It's not an easy walk. It doesn't get simpler and easier, leading to greater and easier contentment. Sometimes the Christian life gets harder, more complex, and difficult. Why? Because Jesus is going to round off your corners. No piece of wood being sanded is excited about that. And yet, it's for our good. The Lord uses situations for His good. Things that are painful rather than pleasant. And its purpose is to yield the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Which is to say this. I know in this room of at least eight or nine, maybe ten situations that are extraordinarily difficult. I can't fathom what some of you are walking through. What I want to remind you of the promise that God made to Jacob. I will not leave you until I've accomplished my purpose for you. In the middle of the dark night, in the middle of the hard season, the hard situation, the hard circumstance, the hard diagnosis, please know Jesus is in the middle of it with you. And somehow, I don't know how, he's going to use it for his good. He's going to use it for your good. He's going to use it for his glory. And then it's our job as believers in Jesus Christ, if we're going to call him king, if we're going to call him Lord, that we submit ourselves to him as the king. Say, Lord, you can do anything you want. I trust you. Trust you're going to use this. And we submit ourselves to Him. Friends, I would just encourage you, if you're in the middle of a hard situation, to take heart. That the Lord is with you. And that He's going to use it for His good and for His glory. And He may just be forming your character. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, You're a very good daddy. You're better than any father any of us have ever had. And you choose to discipline us sometimes. Father, if we read through your scriptures, if we look back at passages that Jesus talks about the in John 15, where you, you prune the vines, the two groups of vines, those that are burned and those that are pruned, we should expect to be pruned. Father, you discipline those you love. If we go through hardship, if we go through difficulties, 
Father, often it's because you love us so much. It's often because you're calling us to depend on you more. It's often because you're you're wanting to refine our character or even confront us for our sin. Father, I pray that you would build us up as believers in Jesus Christ. That if, in fact, we've trusted in you, if we've believed in you, that we'd lean into that and recognize that you are God. That you would be our hope. And that we would recognize that you can use all things for your glory. Father, I ask that you'd build us, that you'd keep us, that you'd sustain us. And that Christ would forever be our hope. It's in his name. It's in the name of Jesus who didn't lose one. In his name we pray. Amen.